0: But we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4, and the story that we're looking at today and learning from, uh, it expands over a lot of uh, verses, a couple of different chapters, and so I'm just going to be reading sort of the uh, conclusion of this story. Uh, so we're going to be starting in verse 24 once you get there. But we're in Daniel chapter 4, and I'll be starting in verse 24. All right, well, if we're all ready, if we're all there, almost there, Let's go ahead and read from this passage this morning and then see what we have to learn from it. So, in Daniel chapter 4 and in verse 24, it says, This is Daniel speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, you will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right, and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy, Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity." All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, "'Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory?' While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven." And the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens, because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. So this is one of the most famous stories from the book of Daniel, and for good reason. It's a, it's a memorable story uh, and an interesting one, and a lot of different things we can say about it. King Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world, or at least in the known world at this time. He was the absolute monarch, the emperor, over what was the world's superpower at the time, which was the Empire of Babylon. And so after he had conquered, like I said, what was considered all of the known world by this time, a massive expanse of, uh, of earth, nations, and kingdoms that he had conquered and subjected underneath his rule, after he had done this, he decided to build a city for himself, the city of Babylon. And so he builds this great city to be itself a monument to his glory and his majesty, as he talks about in there. And the city that he built was actually so... Majestic, not not just by his standards, but but by world history standards, uh, that the ancient city of Babylon became known as one of the uh, ancient one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was it was reportedly the most beautiful city, even greater than the future uh, great city of Rome that would be built in the Roman Empire. It was a beautiful city that was built. It was it was large and it was filled with these hanging gardens, right? And so he didn't just build. A massive city, or, uh, or, or just massive monuments himself, but it was also a beautiful city filled with glory, all that it might point to his glory and his majesty. Nebuchadnezzar, in his time, reached a level of power and of fame and, glo- and human glory, he reached a level of affluence that very, very, very few people in all of world history have ever even gotten close to. He was literally on top of the world. And yet, though he had climbed so high and though he had accomplished so much and, and like I said, gotten to a place that few human beings have ever gotten to, we read in this story, his life falls apart. His sleep is robbed of him in spite of all his accomplishments, in spite of all of his glory, in spite of living, building, and then living in one of the ancient wonders of the world, the most beautiful city that has ever been built, in spite of it all, his life still falls apart. Could it be that what clouded his mind in this passage could be clouding yours as well? Could it be that what caused his life to fall apart here in this passage, in spite of all the worldly achievements that should have prevented it, could it be that what causes life to fall apart in this passage be what is causing your life to fall apart right now? Or if your life isn't falling apart, at least contributing to the areas of brokenness that there are in your life, because we all have areas of brokenness. We all have areas where we are struggling or secret, uh, secret struggles and, and pains that we are wrestling with. Could it be that what was operating in him and what caused his downfall could be the same in us? In this series, what we're doing is we are looking at the various things in our lives that cause brokenness in our lives, that cause, that cause defeat in our lives, that cause the, the struggles that we go through, and that cause our lives to fall apart and cause pain. Not just in our lives, but things that we can also see adding to the brokenness and causing um, uh, brokenness in the culture around us. And what we're going to look at in this series with all of these different issues— is how all of these things are that are causing the brokenness in our lives are usually those things that we're holding on to the most tightly. And the only way to find victory and freedom from them is to surrender them to God. Though our hearts and the world around us tell us that we should grip them all the more tightly, that we should hold on to them, that, that we cannot do without them, God's message to us is counterintuitive, according to our world's wisdom, what God tells us is that we must surrender these things in order to find victory, in order to find healing, and in order to find freedom. This is what we're doing in this series, and we're looking at what is you know, perhaps one of the, the primary issues that causes brokenness, and this issue is beneath many of the other ones that we'll be looking at in this series, and that is the issue of pride. It's the issue of pride. In the end, Nebuchadnezzar praised God, isn't that amazing? After he had been had gone through that experience, in the end, he praises God for what he had done because God revealed in him what caused his life to fall apart. God revealed in him through that experience a cancer that he had in his soul, and that cancer was pride. It might be a cancer that is in your soul and in my soul as well that is causing brokenness and hurt, and we need to have it dealt with as well. And so we're going to look at how we do that today in this, by looking at this passage. We're going to look at a few different things. First, we're going to look at the heart of pride, what pride is and how it operates in our lives. And then we're going to look at the destruction of pride. In other words, the ways that it causes brokenness and the ways that it causes breakdown and and, and, um, and so on in our lives. And then lastly, we're going to look at how we gain deliverance from pride. So let's begin by looking at the heart of pride. I want to begin by, by telling you about there's a small and relatively unknown branch of theology. Um, in fact, it's so small and so unknown, I'm kind of making it up. And it's called petology. Let me, let me explain petology to you. Petology is this. It's best told with an anecdote. You have a dog. And the dog looks at his, his human. He looks at his owner. The dog looks at his human and he says, you know, he, he feeds me. He gives me all the food that I need. He gives me all the water that I need. He protects me from from anything that would harm me. He takes care of me whenever I am sick. He loves me whenever I am uh, feeling lonely. He plays with me whenever I am wanting to be entertained. He gives me all that I need. He's always there for me. He's always taking care of me. He must be God. Now the cat looks at its owner, and the cat says, you know, he feeds me. He clothes, not clothes me, but maybe, <laughs> uh, you know, he feeds me, he, he gives me uh, water or milk or whatever cats drink, and he says uh, he protects me, he takes care of me whenever I'm sick, he gives me the toys that I want and the, and the furry things to climb and, uh, and, and, and is always there for me and ready to supply all my needs. I must be God. There's two very different attitudes in there, and one of them we can definitely recognize as a prideful attitude. And it's the attitude of the cat that we can see only through pedology, the new branch of theology that I'm creating, that we can begin to understand what pride is. Let me explain to you what pride is, uh, and as is so well illustrated by the cat. The first thing that pride is, Pride has an attitude of accomplishment, okay? And we can see this whenever we we look at Nebuchadnezzar, obviously, in this passage. In verses 29 and 30, right before God's word to him that had come in the dream, um, I should back up and tell you what the dream was because we started reading towards the end of the story. Nebuchadnezzar had been having a few dreams that were causing him to lose sleep. And one of these dreams was the, uh, in the dream he had a vision of this great tree that was so large it covered the earth. But then a voice said, this tree is going to be cut down and only the stump will be left. No one could tell him what the dream meant until David came along and told him what the dream meant, which is where we started reading, right? So he's having these dreams. Daniel tells him what the dreams mean. Nevertheless, 12 months go by after Daniel had told him what the dreams mean and, and had encouraged him to repent and turn away and yet he is still standing over his city. And, and listen to his, his attitude in 29. It says, at the end of 12 months, he's walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, and he exclaimed, is, not, uh, is this not Babylon the Great that I have built? Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built? He looks around at all that he has accomplished. And like I said, he, he reached a level of accomplishment. He climbed the, the pinnacle to, the, the pinnacle of human hierarchies to such a degree that few humans have never gotten to, or ever gotten to. He climbs up there and he and then he looks down at all that he had done. He looks at his empire, you know, the battles that he had won. The, the peoples that he has, he has subjected, now the riches and wealth that he has, the the uh, lands that he owns, the city that he has built. And he, and he says, look at what I have done. He doesn't listen to the words of Daniel, who tells him, he said, Daniel tries to warn him, he says, look, he says, heaven rules over all the empires of the earth. By heaven, he means God, okay? He says, God rules over all the kingdoms of the earth, and he just appoints people, to serve over what is ultimately his, and you need to recognize that, Neb. You need to recognize that before what God has told you in this dream comes to pass. But did he recognize it? No. Instead, he looks around and he says, look at what I have built. Look at what I have done. This is pride at work. Pride is an attitude of accomplishment. It looks at all the good things in your life, and it says, I did that. I accomplished that. You know, pride in our life often works like a good politician. You know what a good politician does? A good politician always takes credit for the good things that happens, but the bad things that happen, that was always someone else's fault. And pride in our life works in the same way. All the the bad things that have happened in our life and the messes that that we've gotten into and the brokenness that is there, pride will always tell us that that was something else's fault. Maybe it will tell us it was your family's fault. Maybe it'll tell you it was society's fault. Maybe it'll tell you it was your teacher's fault. Maybe it'll tell you it's just life's fault or it's God's fault for not giving you what you really deserve. But then it tells you that, you know, but all the good things and all the accomplishments, all the things that have gone well, that, though, is all you. Pride is a sense of or an attitude of accomplishment giving no recognition to God who ultimately gives all. So first, it's an attitude of accomplishment. And then secondly, we can see that pride is an attitude of entitlement. Because if pride tells you to look around at your life and recognize that all that is good about it and all the accomplishments and even your your physical appearance and and, and what people think of you and so on is all due to just "Mm, how good you are. Well, then that then that then leads you to think, well, then I deserve even more. I deserve even more because I can, I can do even more. Or, you know, on the other hand, maybe if your life hasn't gone so well and you haven't accomplished so many great things and you don't have that much wealth, riches or great reputation and so on. What pride will tell you is that you don't deserve what you have right now, but you do deserve all that stuff. It calls you to look around at, 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 at the lives of others who are around you, who have the things that you want, who are in the places in life that you want, who are, who are maybe living at the level of affluence that you desire and driving the vehicles that you want and going on the vacations that you want to go on. And pride tells you, you know what, I should have those things. I should have those things. Those should be mine. I don't deserve what I have now, the place I'm in now. I deserve that, what's better. So if things are going well, it'll tell you, you know, I really deserve all this. I really deserve all this because I've, I've, I have done it. I have accomplished it. But if not, you'll be saying to yourself, I deserve better than this. This is how pride operates in our hearts. You see, pride is, we can describe it this way. Pride is like a, it's like a cosmic plagiarism. You know what I mean by that? Pride is like a cosmic plagiarism. Because we recognize if we have a biblical attitude that God is the author of life. He writes the story of history. He writes all of our stories. And as the author of life, ultimately all the good things in life are his work, his doing. But here's what pride does. Whenever something comes into your life or comes into our life that is ultimately a gift from the real author of life, We take it and we say, I wrote that. I did that. We take what God wrote and we say, this is mine. I did it. I accomplished this. I wrote this. I am the author. I did that. I deserve it. That's what I mean by pride is being, it's like cosmic plagiarism. It doesn't recognize life and the good things that are in life, the good things that happen to us as gifts, but instead things that we earned and deserved. This is the polar opposite of a life that is in a heart that is marked by humility. Humility is the complete contrast. It doesn't look at life and say, here are all the things that I have accomplished in my my own greatness. And humility doesn't look at life and say, I deserve so much better than this. Humility looks at life and recognizes, I don't deserve any of this. Humility recognizes Just exactly who we are before the true author of life. That anything that was good written to our story was written by the one who is truly the author. And not ultimately by me. We recognize, moreover, that we have assaulted the author. We have assaulted and sinned against the sovereign Lord, the king of the universe. Therefore, he does not owe us any good thing at all. This is an attitude of humility. You know, the Oscars are coming up soon. And the Oscars are just one big display of human pridefulness and glory after another. As uh, as people gather together to cheer on and, and all bask in their glory and their goodness, and they stand up on the stage, you know, and they and they just bask in what they have done and what they have accomplished and how they've, they've worked so hard for it. And they might throw out some thank yous to... You know, the people who have been signing their paychecks. But other than that, the the glory is all theirs. They never recognize, you know what? God's the one who gave you those Hollywood good looks. Where would you be without those? You know, God's the one who opened up those opportunities for you. God's the one who gave you those talents. God's the one who provided the financing and so on and so on. Just as Nebuchadnezzar did not realize God gave him Babylon. Babylon. God owns all the empires. God owns all the nations of the earth, and he just sets up rulers as he desires to to steward them as his servant. Humility, on the other hand, recognizes that he's the author, that he owns it all, and that anything that we receive is a gift. Humility is an outlook on life that looks at our life and it looks at the good things that we have and it rejoices in just how good God is and how merciful he is to give us what we have. Humility is a joyful outlook on life, looking at all the blessings we have in terms of your health or in terms of your job, in terms of your family or your relationships, and, and whatever blessings that God has put in your life. And you, re- and you don't look at any of it as, look at my possessions, what I've done. But you look at it and you say, it's all gravy, baby. It's all good. It's all been a gift given to me by, by the good Lord, by his mercy. And it makes it so much better. Now, someone might respond and say, you know what, that's a really bleak and depressing outlook on life to just say, I don't deserve any of this. It's, it, it's, I don't deserve it. It shouldn't be mine. But that's a misunderstanding of what humility actually is. Humility, what they don't understand is humility is ultimately what I just said before, not an attitude of, oh, I don't deserve this, but an attitude of just joyfully receiving life as a gift, joyfully receiving all that God has given us as a gift. Because we all know the attitude of the person who says, I don't deserve happiness. I don't deserve this and that. I I don't deserve friendships. I don't deserve to be out of this miserable situation that I'm in. I don't deserve success, etc., etc. We all know that type of personality. I bet many of us have been that type of personality before, right? But that's a false humility. That's not true humility. Humility. That's a false humility. You know what it actually is? It's actually a kind of pride in reverse. It's ultimately pride still at work in that person's heart who is, who is on the outside saying all those things because it's pride in their heart saying this, and it's an attitude of, I should earn all those things, and if I cannot earn them, then I don't want them. It's still pride operating in the heart. Humility, on the other hand, just joyfully recognizes the blessings of life and then receives them. So once again, pride is the attempt to take what God has given us and then claim ownership of it. Now, how do we recognize if pride is really operating in our lives? Because for some of us, we might already know we're dead set. Yes, it is operating, just on what you said. But, for, but sometimes we don't know. You know, We go through times in our life where pride can, can be operating very deceitfully. And, and in ways that we uh, and causing issues and, and doing things that we don't immediately recognize, oh, this is pride. You know, maybe just what I explained before about that false humility, maybe for some of us that struck us, oh, I didn't realize that was pride. So how can we know? Well, let's look at what the symptoms of pride are. In other words, the destruction that pride causes so that we can unmask the way that it is operating. Now like I said, Ned, Not Ned, Neb. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, these visions of this great tree that was going to be cut down with just the stump left. No one could interpret the dream for him until Daniel comes along. And Daniel is given the interpretation to the dream, and he tells it to him in verse 27. And in verse 27, he says to him, May my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right And from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Daniel tells him that what you are experiencing by these dreams is a warning to you from God. It's a sign of, it is the goodness of God trying to warn you and wake you up to the pride that is operating, and now you have an opportunity to repent. So, likewise, we need to look at the symptoms of pride and say, okay, Is God sending me warnings too? Maybe not through uh, vivid visions necessarily, but is God sending me warnings too? Is God trying to show me that there is pride and giving me the opportunity to repent before it makes my life fall apart? Let's look. Let's look at some of the ways that pride causes destruction in our life. The first one that we can pull directly from this story is that pride will rob you of sleep. Pride will rob you of sleep. Now, I I do mean that quite literally, but I also mean it in terms of pride will rob you of, of just comfort, of contentedness, of the kind of peacefulness that we attribute with the ability to fall into a deep sleep. It's going to cause unrest inside of you. You see, Neb's pride drove him to accomplish all that he had done. You know, it was his pride that was at work in his heart all along, that caused him to rise up to be king and emperor of Babylon, to extend the empire of Babylon over all those nations, to win all those battles, to build the empire, to build the city, and so on. All these accomplishments were like food for his pride to feed upon. And yet, and in, in spite of them all, in spite of all that his heart had to feed upon, he cannot sleep. The most basic of human needs next to food and water, sleep, In spite of all he had accomplished, his pride robbed him of that. And it can do the same in our lives as well. Robbing us of of literally our sleep, it can, but robbing us of the peacefulness and the contentedness that we need in our lives. No matter how prosperous you are, this shows us. Because look at Nebuchadnezzar. All of us in here can never imagine reaching his level of success and achievements what it shows us is that if he could reach that level and still be robbed of his of his sleep, his contentedness and peace, it tells us no matter how prosperous you are, it will never be enough to make you complete. Pride will always tell us, you know what, you just need you just need one more accomplishment. You know what? You just need one more friendship, or you, you need one more, maybe romantic relationship. You need just one more hit of this or that experience this high maybe from a substance or through an experience through a, through a trip an adventure or so on and then you will feel complete. you need just some more things to look at that will validate your heart. but pride will never be satisfied because the human heart is longing for something that is bigger than the world and pride will drive you to look to the world to be completed and satisfied but it'll never be enough. Many people never quite fully learn this lesson because we don't achieve enough to learn this lesson. But we can look at the lives of people who who have. Look at the lives of people in in our culture, in our society, who have reached the top of whatever it is, the top of their industry, the top of the company, the top of, um, of, of culture, of pop culture and entertainment, the top of governments and so on, Look at those people who have reached the top. And what you will often find is people who are despairing and who are disturbed, who are troubled because they have reached the top, experienced all they could, and their heart is still not satisfied. They are robbed of sleep. Pride will do this to us as well. Do you see that operating in your life? Something in your heart that is robbing you of contentedness, of comfort, of being complete? Second, Pride makes you like an animal, unable to empathize with people. One of the reasons this story is so easy to remember is because Nebuchadnezzar because of his pride is quite literally driven into a madness that makes him live as an animal outside of his palace. It says for for seven periods. We don't know exactly how long that means. Was it 7 weeks? Was it 7 months? Was it 7 years? Uh, or not exactly seven, but just, you know, some period of time. It was a long period of time, right? And he was driven to a madness because of because of his pride that made him ultimately less than human. And, you know, Before I even get too deeply into that, I just want to point this out. Before we start to turn our noses up at the Bible and say, you know, oh, what what fantastical stories to teach us a little lesson. And not recognize just how quite literally it is showing us the danger of pride. Because we might say to ourselves, oh, it's silly, it's foolish that someone could ever be so prideful that they will begin to identify themselves as an animal. But oh, look at our culture right now. And look at the lifestyles that are being celebrated and being put, and that people are being pushed into, that that causes them to, in some cases, quite literally, I'm not I'm not bringing this up as an example for us to laugh at or to turn our noses up at, but cases where people do quite literally identify as animals, or or sometimes they are are self-identified as furries, they're called. These are lifestyles which, in our culture and its pride, are quite literally coming to be seen as normal, acceptable, to be approved of. Before we turn our noses up at scripture and say, oh, how how over the top, and it's nice little moral lessons, maybe we should step back and recognize, as we are witnessing in our culture right now, no, it is telling us what literally happens, the madness and the, the, the brokenness that people are driven to whenever they indulge in their pride. So, As I said, pride will make you like an animal, unable to empathize with people. Any psychologist or counselor, therapist uh, who specializes in mental health diseases and disorders will tell you that one of the most common signs of someone who is a pathological narcissist is what? That they cannot empathize with people. They cannot empathize with other people. They have no concern for other people. They cannot connect with other people. They have a difficulty identifying and sympathizing with the pain, the plights, the difficulties, and the feelings of other people. Why? Because they're so wrapped up in their self. Now, maybe, and I hope not, I hope that none of us in here are pathological narcissists, but to lesser degrees, sinful pride, spiritual pride, will do the same thing in our lives. It will make us so wrapped up in ourselves, so turned inwardly oriented on ourselves and concerned with ourselves and our glory and our majesty and what we have accomplished and maybe what we don't have and haven't an accomplished that we think we deserve, that we can't even connect with other people. We're unable to empathize and sympathize with others. We are never more in touch with our humanity than whenever we are outwardly oriented towards others, concerned and our attention placed on others and able to sympathize with others, This is what makes a healthy marriage such a powerful relationship, that you have two people who are not inwardly turned on their, their own self and their own needs, but fully facing the other, and the other's needs and feelings and their good, and it creates a powerful bond that makes you more than you ever thought you could have been before. But pride wants the opposite of that. Instead of being turned outwardly onto another person, turn inwardly on the self. And then the more turned inwardly on the self we are, the more it separates us from and cuts off that channel that we had to connect with others, making us like an animal, so self-absorbed that we can't even notice people around us. Do you recognize that in your life? An inability to be concerned with the needs of others or a lack of concern with the needs of others. Third, oh, I just I, there's a typo on my notes for anyone who sees my notes. I, I said second, second. There's no two seconds. There's only one second. And then there's third. So third, pride once again makes you like an animal intimidated by people. You've seen how wild animals have a natural fear of people. Even, even dogs that aren't domesticated will have a natural fear of people. Well, pride will do a very, something very similar in our hearts as well. This is something that C.S. Lewis talks about in his chapter on pride in Mere Christianity. Uh, if you haven't mere, read Mere Christianity yet, uh, I hope that you get around to it. It is a classic for a reason. But maybe one, of, maybe the best chapter out of the entire book, Well, once, once he gets well past the apologetics section, which is very good, the chapter on pride. The chapter on pride. Buy the book and just read that chapter if you, if you want to. It's very short. It is one of the best Christian writings we have on pride. What he points out is that the person who has pride operating in their heart will do everything they can to stay away from anyone who is stronger, from anyone who is better, from anyone who is more accomplished, from anyone, in other words, who points out to them and makes it apparent that they are not the center of the universe. Let me ask you, have you ever been, as you are um, going through your studies in college, Have you ever been near someone else, maybe one of your peers, classmates, or someone who is a few grades ahead of you, and they are someone who is just rocking it? They're a stud. They've got straight A's, and they've got the extracurriculars, and they are well-admired by all the professors. They're already being scouted and talked to and interviewed in the fields that you're wanting to go into. And whenever you're around this person, this peer in, in your class, you feel insecure, you don't like being around them. Maybe you start to avoid the places that you know that they are, the parties that you know that they're going to be at. Or maybe you you slightly start to, you know, uh, you know, what do the Zoomers say? You start to throw shade at them. Or is that already, like, not cool anymore? Uh, I don't know either. You know, you start to throw shade at them here and there. I'm just going to go with it. Or maybe... Not in college, but just in the field that you work in. And there's someone who is so much more successful than you in that field. And they come around and you feel you know a tightness of the chest. Or someone who is far better looking than you and you start to feel a little resentment towards them. That's pride. That's pride operating in your heart. Pride will do everything that it can to make you dislike, resent, talk bad about, cachet at. And stay away from anyone who points out that you are not the best, that you are not the center of the universe. Several years ago, I started to recognize that that there was this – I'm not going to go into details – but there's there was this person, a great guy, by the way, great guy. But every time I was around this guy, I started to feel extremely anxious. I was really anxious, and I just – I saw myself just not liking him. I just didn't like the guy. And I was trying to come up with all these reasons for why I didn't like him and, uh, you know, why he wasn't that great – and then I started to explore my heart and, and recognize, wait a minute, why am I so anxious around this guy? And I started to recognize it in some other situations as well. And I thought, why am I so insecure around these people? And at first I thought oh, maybe it's just because I'm a shy, I'm I'm a shy person. But then I started to realize, no, there's more going on here. What is happening? I've got to figure out what's beneath this like social insecurity I have. And so for several weeks, I was praying about it, making it the center of my my prayers with God. And I was searching scripture, reading about it, trying to figure out, Lord, what is going on in my heart? I didn't even recognize what is happening here. And I came and I was reading through Proverbs. And I read Proverbs about how God will cast down the proud but then raise up the humble. And, you know, I I wish I could remember exactly what verse it was I read. I don't remember which one it was. It was one of those. And it struck me between the eyes. God said, you have been so insecure, you've been resenting this person or maybe those other people, because you have pride inside of you that is that is revealed whenever you're around them. Oh, I didn't even recognize it. I didn't even see it at the time. I thought it was just social insecurity or shyness or whatever else. And God showed me, no, it is pride. You're intimidated by him. How much better he is than you? How much more successful he is than you? That's what's wrong. And once I dealt with that, then the And the social anxiety, the insecurity, those things were then healed. The brokenness and ways that my life were falling apart, it was pride beneath it all that needed to be surrendered to God so that it could be healed. Lastly, symptoms of pride. Pride makes you incapable of joy. Pride will suck the joy out of life because whenever you receive something good, your attitude will be, it's about time. Or whenever you receive something good, the satisfaction that comes from it will be very momentary because you're just going to want the next thing. You're just going to want the next accomplishment. You're just going to want the next meal. You're just going to want the next uh, piece of clothing, whatever else it is. It's going to rob and suck all the joy out of your life because you're going to think, well, it's about time. Or, or, well, I didn't actually want this. I wanted something else. Or, on the other hand, whenever you receive hardships in your life, things don't go exactly as you planned and desired them to, it will make you bitter. It will make you so bitter because you thought, I worked for better than this. I worked for better than this. I've been better than this. And look at what I've gotten. Pride, simultaneously, will destroy your ability to handle the bad times with resilience Uh, And even with confidence, while also sucking the goodness and joy out of the good times. So maybe you've recognized that there is pride operating in your heart. You've seen the destructiveness of it in your life. And so we ask, well, how can we be healed of this pride that causes brokenness in our life? Let me just point out once again, the world's solutions, and I'm not going to go deep into this, but the world's solutions will only make your pride worse. You can think of examples of this in your own mind, but the world's solutions to pride—you know—that the, the pride of wanting to build up more accomplishments, the world will tell you, well, you, you just need better accomplishments, and you need more. Or, well, maybe just because you haven't been receiving, you're just due for the accomplishments you have, and you need to make sure that people affirm those accomplishments. You need to make sure that people affirm and celebrate whatever it is that you desire for yourself, and you uh, want people to see and recognize about you. We can go into so many different examples, but the world's solutions to the destructiveness of pride will only be to make the pride worse. Their answer will be, you just need to hold on to it tighter and make other people make other people recognize it and see it too. Whereas the Bible's answer is the complete opposite. The world will tell us to hold on to it, but the Bible tells us that there is only one solution, and it is whenever you surrender your pride to God. It is whenever you surrender to God And praise him and recognize him as he is the true author. I am not the author. Those good things that came into my life and the successes I've had, I didn't write those into my story. He did. It's when if you surrender your pride to God, then he can heal them. Only God can heal your pride. You must surrender to him. You see, Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was the master of the universe. And he lost it all because of that. How can he be healed and how can we be healed of our pride whenever we surrender it to God? Because the true master of the universe and because the true author of life came down to this earth. And he didn't lose it all, but he gave it all away. Whenever Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord, went to the cross on our behalf, giving away all that he had, giving away all of that active obedience and righteousness that he had earned up in his life, giving it away to receive something that he didn't deserve, which was a curse, which was condemnation, which was death, which was the wrath of God that should have been ours poured out upon him. Therefore, turning that wrath of God that should have been poured out on us into favor for us, turning his wrath into mercy for us, Jesus, the true master of the universe, received something that he didn't deserve so that we might now, in the just goodness of God, receive something that we do not deserve, which is his gift of life, which is his gift of forgiveness from our sins, his gift of grace, receiving his goodness, receiving all these things that we do not earn them. Only whenever you recognize that your sin and that your pride is, is so wicked enough, and it is so vile enough, and it is so bad and so serious enough that it required the Lord of the universe dying for it, and that yet he was glad to do so, that he loved you enough to do so, that he might now graciously pour out blessings upon you. Whenever you see that, then you will realize and you will recognize that the only solution is, of course, to surrender your pride before the cross of Jesus Christ so that it and the Lord's wrath upon it might die and be on his cross, be buried in his tomb, and you might receive the healing that you need from it, the new life that God gives. This is what is offered to us. Now, if you receive that new life, if you have laid down your pride before God at the cross, surrendered it to him, how do I know I've been healed of it? Let me give you, before we go, very quickly, two tests to know that you have been healed from your pride, that the Lord has given you victory through surrender. The first one is this. First, you look at your life and you confess to God everything you do is right. This is what Nebuchadnezzar confessed at the very end. In verse 37, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens, because all his works are true and his ways are just. In other translations, he, he says, because everything you do is right. He recognized that it was all from the Lord and that everything the Lord does, whatever he receives in life, is good because it is from God. So you look around your life and you recognize and confess to God everything you do is good and just. Whether that be the hard times we experience or the goodness and the blessings that we experience. As Christians, we still weep over pain and suffering. And we still lament that the brokenness of the world ought not to be. Humility, and what this is speaking of, doesn't mean that we no longer lament over the brokenness of the world. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong to desire that the pain and the obstacles you're experiencing in your life might be relieved by God the Father. Yet, it doesn't have a sense of entitlement about receiving those obstacles removed or the hard times being taken away. Because we recognize that, oh, we deserve so much worse and that everything God does in our life now is good and just. So that's the first test. You look at your life and confess to God everything you do is right. The second test, you use your life now to be generous to others and to serve others. Once again, in verse 27, whenever Daniel warned Nebuchadnezzar of what was going to happen and called him to repentance, notice he calls him to repentance, but then he also shows him what his repentance will look like. He says, separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. A Nebuchadnezzar that is no longer operating on pride is a Nebuchadnezzar who does what is right and who serves those who are in need. And the same thing is not just true for Nebuchadnezzar, but it'll be the same thing in our lives. Whenever your heart is no longer inwardly turned on the self, but now turned up to God, healed by God, and ready to be turned and oriented towards others and their needs, then it's going to make you someone who will be generous. Generous with your time, generous with your attention, generous even with your resources, and someone who is, in that generosity, ready and eager to serve others. Because you are not just so focused on yourself and your needs and what is good for you, but what is also good for others. So, just as Daniel said, God is warning you, you have time, repent, surrender. Is God saying that same thing to you now? Has he been showing you the warning signs that pride is operating in your heart, in your life? And is he calling you now saying, there is still time before things fall apart? Repent, surrender. If he is saying that to you, answer him today by surrendering that pride before the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good Lord who in your mercy reveals to us the things that would cause our lives to fall apart and to bring brokenness and to bring destruction. And foremost among those those we see pride. Father, we thank you that in your goodness, like a good surgeon, you cut deeply into the heart so you might reveal the cancer that is in our souls. So, Father, for all of us, as you have revealed and as you have convicted and cut, we ask that you would help us come before the foot of the cross in the confidence that we have of your goodness and grace and mercy that is waiting for us at that cross, so that we might be ready and eager to lay down our lives before that cross, to surrender our pride, to surrender our, our, our uh, cosmic plagiarism and our attitudes of entitlement, at the foot of the cross and transformed into people who no longer live for ourselves, but live for you and live for the goodness of others. Father, in the good news of the gospel, would you transform our hearts so we might surrender and in surrendering to you, experience victory. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.